I have told you for years that um, David writes incredibly wonderful wedding songs. I think this morning we heard his finest effort to date. Well, I don't know. It's just more meaningful to me this morning than, than the other times. But it was wonderful. Thank you, David. What a gift. And Sarah, beautifully sung. Um, tonight, I want to say a word about tonight before we get started. Um, our volunteer appreciation potluck, as we say every year, is for more than just um, those who have served here this year. You may be relatively new to church. We want everybody here, whether you have done anything or not, just bring your finest dish. That's all we ask of you at 530. So I know you're going to be tempted to go out, like Sean said, to Burger King or to uh, Golden Corral. But why don't you go instead to Subway and get a six inch? Don't fill up before tonight. Just bring your best. And you're going to be tempted to say, oh, it's just so hot. And oh, we've got other things to do. Be here with the body tonight. Jimmy Elliott is going to speak. And afterwards, uh, the youth, if you are able to stay, will be hearing from Sophie Cotton. Um, Sophie is a dynamite Christian, as all of the Cottons are. David, who read this morning, and his wife, Catherine, and Sophie and Laura and Josh have been staying with us for this last week. And you'll want to get to know them a little bit better as well. You can't do it after the service because David and, and Allison and Sophie and Sarah and I are ducking out. We, as soon as I finish preaching, we've got a camp um, deadline to meet. Sarah is going to be at Camp Oak Hill for a couple of weeks, a great camp in Creedmoor. But we'll be here tonight. They'll all be, or at least most of them will be here tonight. The, the cotton, some of them may not come, but you have an opportunity to get to know them a lot better. So be here at 530. We'll be taking names. Now, I better stop right there. And then... Uh, very interesting we're reading this text tonight we're going to see how the apostle paul was very patriotic uh and then friday night or saturday night at the money pennies we're going to be celebrating the birth of our country so um <clears throat> be there as well as being here tonight uh, and it's a it's a great time it's just the numbers just grow at, at the money pennies on Independence Day weekend, so that'll be a wonderful time as well. Just opportunities that we have, especially in the summer when the home groups are are a little bit more sporadic than they are the other time of year. Opportunities to be gathered with the body are, are, are not that often presented, and so when they are, please do your best to be there. Well, back in the uh, late 1970s, when I was at TVR, we had a group that came from Roanoke Rapids for one weekend. They came up for a ski retreat just Friday to Sunday. They got there Friday morning, and, um, and they were a little disappointed at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon because it was 50 degrees, the sun was shining. We got up to the top of Beach Mountain, and by 6 o'clock we were snowed in, absolutely snowed in. Four inches of snow on the ground big wet snowflakes that stuck and snowed in we couldn't get off the mountain they let us off at about 1 a.m finally and they shouldn't have because we rode down the mountain um in with lights flickering on the bus and an inch of snow packed deep on the road it's a wonder we made it off of that mountain that night 
that the, the drop in temperature and the, and the change in weather, though, that day was nothing like it was in Fairfield, Montana, on December 24th of 1924. At noon, the, the temperature was 63 degrees. And by midnight, 12 hours later, 21 below zero. A drop of 84 degrees in 12 hours. Now, that's drastic change. No doubt you've been a part, not of anything like that, but of drastic weather changes. I mean, one minute it's sunny and bright and warm and no hint of any bad weather on the way. And within minutes, it seems like it's clouded over. The temperature has dropped drastically and maybe some bad weather is moving in. That's sort of the feel that you get in the book of Romans when you're reading chapter 8 and those last Nine, ten verses in Romans chapter 8 are some of the most beautiful, incredibly encouraging verses in all of Scripture. And then a drastic change, a drastic change in chapter 9. Let's look at the text without the benefit of chapter and verse. Just look on the screen. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now that's a drastic change. From the end of Romans 8 to the beginning of Romans 9 is a drastic change. And it introduces yet another text from which I would never choose to preach a message, And in fact, would only do so if I were going through a series like we're going through in the book of Romans as we think about the gospel. I, I heard about one preacher who just totally skipped chapter 9. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to chapter 10 of Romans. No, just, just kidding. <clears throat> but that is the advantage of, of working your way through. You've you got to deal with those passages that are tough. Now, the difficulty of this chapter is is that Paul is defending God's character and his right to choose whom he will for salvation. This, of necessity, means that he chooses some not, or he does not choose some to be saved. And their destiny, then, is eternal damnation in hell. If God chooses some and he doesn't choose the others, then he is consigning them very much to a horrible, eternal future. This is hard truth for the American mind. God chooses you and not you. Well, there's plenty of evidence that this was hard for the first century Christian mind. This is just hard truth, no matter how you look at it. Paul, though, had no trouble defending God's character. Furthermore, God is not the least bit embarrassed about saying, I choose whom I will to be saved. I have mercy on this one and compassion on that one. And it's my business, not yours. He is God and he can do as he wishes. Romans 9 should not be read in the context 
uh, of only the book of Romans, but it should be read in the context of this study that we're doing on the gospel. In, indeed, it's clear that Paul, <clears throat> in his mind, is thinking about the gospel all the way through the book of Romans. And that's appropriate since we have determined that all of Scripture is the gospel. All of Scripture is telling us the story of the gospel. God created. Man fell. God made a way for man to be reconciled to himself through Jesus. And we respond by faith to the good news that Jesus died to absorb the wrath of God that was headed our way. You've seen a good bit of this cycle, gospel cycle, as we read Romans 9 a while ago. Don't you just love to hear someone read Scripture deliberately like David did this morning and then throw in that accent? Anytime someone reads differently than we are used to hearing or thinking about in our minds, it just causes us to take notice. And I have no doubt this morning that as David read, you learned. There was a guy, John Gamble, that used to to read. Jim and Joy Acock know who John Gamble was. We used to call him John Ramble because he would preach forever. You think that I preach a long time? Woo, the man would go. Well, John Gamble would read Scripture and I would learn. And there's something to be said when you're reading through Scripture, just go slowly and deliberately and hear the word of the Lord as it's read. So, We've already seen this gospel cycle in Romans 9. We're going to be reviewing it just... And look, by the way, there'll be verses skipped and verses omitted altogether as uh, we go through this this morning. But you'll see this gospel cycle again as we sort of review the the truth of what, what Paul is trying to communicate about the gospel in Romans 9. Let's begin our time, though, by recalling our definition of the gospel. The just and gracious God of the universe... That's going to be important that you remember this first line as we go through Romans 9. The just and gracious God of the universe in response to hopelessly sinful people sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we can't. It was crucial that Jesus fulfill all of the law that made Him an eligible sacrifice. To live the life that we can't. To bear His wrath against sin on the cross, and to show His power over sin and the resurrection so that all who respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe in Jesus will be reconciled, made right with, justified before God forever. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we come to Your Word this morning, we we acknowledge... This is a little bit tough. Romans 9, what we have read. You choose whom you will and we are not to question it. So open our hearts to receive your truth because it comes from you. And we don't have any question in our hearts and minds that you were good and that you were holy. We need to hear from you. So open us up in Jesus' name. Amen. What a heart that the Apostle Paul had. He was, as you know, a Jew. 
And before his conversion, he was highly respected. He was a religious leader, and he was highly respected by his fellow leaders and all the people uh, of Israel. After his conversion to Christ, though, he was hated by the ones who had previously admired him. All of a sudden, they turned on him. The religious leaders thought of Jesus as a heretic, and Paul was preaching Jesus, and so they persecuted him mercilessly, sought to, to destroy not only his message, but to destroy him himself. Let's just put an end to a message, his message by putting an end to Paul. And yet, he loved his own countrymen and, and wanted them to come to the place of accepting Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, who was the Lamb of God to bear the sins on the cross. You know, it was perhaps the beautiful truths at the end of Romans 8, thinking about the graciousness and the love of God and the, the love of God in Jesus Christ that caused Paul to all of a sudden recall that his, his fellow brother and sister Jews weren't saved. And he just broke down crying out for, him, for them, saying that if it were possible, I would spend eternity in hell if God would only allow it. I imagine some of you mean from the bottom of your hearts, Lord, I would spend eternity in hell if you would just let this family member of mine or these family members of mine or these people that I love so dearly, if you would just let them be saved. Well, that's what Paul was saying. I would, I would do it. If you would allow him, allow it. You know, Paul had the same kind of love for his country that we have for ours. He, he was just patriotic. But his frustration was that so much had been given to the Israelites and they had squandered it. And I think we feel the same way in this country. Look at all God has allowed. Look at the truth of the gospel that has gone forth. And we're throwing it away. And the gospel, for all I can tell, the gospel is moving east. It's moving to Asia. And it's not long before the gospel here is like the gospel in Europe. And you want to know about that? Talk to the Cottons tonight. What it's like in Spain. The people who are attending church are people from South America and Romania and Poland. They're not people from Spain. Because people have given up on the gospel. You saw Sophie in the, in the video last week. I'm Catholic, but I don't believe in God. It makes no sense to us. That's like saying I'm Baptist, but I don't believe in potlucks. You know? It's just, it makes no sense. As a nation, we scoff at the gospel. But you know, the Israelites had a far different relationship with the Lord than we do even. As much as I love this country, we've never been given the privileges that the Jewish nation had been given. They enjoyed a special relationship with God filled with covenants and promises and the law. And, and the law had pointed them to Jesus who in fact was from their nation. God in the flesh came as a Jewish baby. And they just... Threw it all away. God's people. God's chosen people. Who are they? Well, there's no doubt that initially God put his blessing on the nation 
of Israel to bless the world. This truth has been reinforced repeatedly throughout Romans. And here it is again. But now the gospel was moving from the Jews to the Gentiles. And Paul has some explaining to do, as Lucy would say. Or Ricky would say to Lucy. You got some explaining. You've got some explaining to do. Well, the gospel, these are God's chosen people. And if this is God's way, really, why isn't it being accepted by the Jews? Has God abandoned his people? The answer Paul gave was a resounding no. Will God once again call his people, the Jewish nation, back to himself? Romans 11 in particular is going to address that question. And I think, yes, he will. And I don't think he's done with the Jews. I guarantee that some of you think that he is. That it's, you know, as a nation, it's, it's never going to be the same as it was before. And, and that's the point. There are godly scholars on both sides of this issue who draw different conclusions. Especially from Romans 11. They look at the same text and they say, Aha! God's going to bring Israel back to himself. And others say, Aha! God is done with Israel and all of the blessings to Israel are now transferred to the church. People feel both ways. And we have taken as much of a middle ground in our constitution and our church as we possibly can. Because we understand that people are just, just have different ideas about this. And even though much is said about the Jews and the Gentiles, and in fact, that's a big emphasis of Romans chapter 9. Paul explaining the fact that the gospel is moving now to the Gentiles, at least for that period, for this long period of time that we've had. <laughs> Even though that's the case, it's all being done in, in the context of the gospel. The gospel is going forth from and through his people, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. And I was going to say something else, but it's long gone. Now, before we move to these next verses, let me just say, we're going to talk about election. Let me say that election is one of the most difficult doctrines in Scripture for many people to accept. And if you have a struggle with this doctrine of election, I can assure you, I understand your struggle. And it has taken many, many years for me to accept it as fully as I have. And, and, and one of the primary reasons that I have accepted it is because of Romans 9, coming to Romans 9. You can only look at this one way. There's just no room. Now, <clears throat> I didn't plan to say this. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again anyway. Maybe it'll be helpful. Does God choose us or do we choose him? I think scripture says yes. Some people say only one way. Here's the plane on which God's sovereignty and his election resides. Here's the plane on which our choice resides. I think that both election and our choice operate simultaneously without contradiction. Now, there's, it's an impossibility in our mind to reconcile. We just can't do that. We can't say, how does God choose and I choose all at the same time? It's, it, it's either one or the other. Well, both are presented in Scripture, that we have a legitimate choice to come before the Lord. But it's also stated that He chooses us, we have nothing to do with it, and be quiet, don't object to that. It's just His business. How does that function? Well, God's bigger than we are. And, and, and I think I've mentioned this in this series before, the Apostle Paul especially was far too brilliant to leave these contradictions on the table. 
They both truths were stated and just left there. And it's for God to understand and not for us to understand. But I will say this, and it's important as we go into Romans 9. If it's one or the other, it's got to be this one. God chooses. It can't be this one. The, the doctrine is too clear in Scripture. It's difficult for us to accept because, it, because to us it seems like He loves me, He loves me not. He's capricious and He's just making decisions based like we would. You know? I like this one, I don't like that one. Kind of like, you know, when you're choosing up for a basketball team or a basketball game or kickball or whatever it was, you know. And they'd say, the first person that would be chosen would come over and say, choose this one. And the captain would say that one. He'd say, oh, no, not that one, not that one. Why do you choose that one? It's not going to help our team at all. God doesn't choose the way we choose. He doesn't do things the way that we do. As we move into looking at verses that are going to talk more about God's direction in, in, in salvation, you'll, you'll talk about God's direction in salvation. You'll see also, though, that man has a responsibility before the Lord. In verse 6, Paul addresses those who would say that God has abandoned his people. We're back to the Jews versus Gentile issue. Has God abandoned his people? No! Paul says, God has always differentiated between his people and those who were not his people. It was not only through Abraham that God would bless his people, but it was through Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael, as you know, had two different mothers. But that was not the case with Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. Not only did they have the same mother, they were twins. Before they were even born, before they'd done anything good or bad. And, and I've got to tell you, we don't read too much about Esau, but Jacob wasn't a great guy. He was lying, conniving every time he turned around. Deceiving. And it's interesting, is it not, that, that God told Rebekah, I've chosen Jacob. Not Isaac. I'm going to tell you who Isaac chose. Isaac chose Esau. Isaac loved Esau far more than he did Jacob. But God had chosen Jacob. Before they were even born, God made a distinction between them. Why? Verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. And we've been told repeatedly in this study on the gospel in the book of Romans, and it is everywhere in Scripture, that salvation is not of works, but by God's grace and mercy as He calls men and women to Himself. There are two truths that might be helpful for us to remember about election. First, election is not just Paul's conception of how God works. Once again, it's all through Scripture. But Jesus said very much the same thing. I know whom I have chosen, he said in John 13. And then in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. But second, as John Stott says, election is an indispensable foundation of Christian worship in time and eternity. 
It's always been so. Psalm 115, 1 is just, a, a, just one tiny example of what we see all through the, the Word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I think all of us can embrace those comments about an undeniable doctrine in Scripture that God elects us for salvation. It's verse 12 that gives us trouble. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. How are we going to deal with that? I mean, I would understand it if he said, Carolina I loved, Duke I hated. I, don't, I, I get that. But I don't get it when you're talking about people, individual people. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Well, first thing is we need to know that this hatred is not being used in the same way that we would use it. You'll recall in Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, Jesus obviously is not saying you're to hate those people that I've just told you to love. He was saying that he must have the priority in our lives. If he is going to be Lord and we are going to be his followers, then he's going to have the priority. And we have to choose him over these others, even at times when it's difficult. We must prefer him over any human relationship that we enjoy. And that's what God is saying about Jacob and Esau. He preferred Jacob over Esau. Now, furthermore, he doesn't deal with it so much here in Romans 9 when he talks about Esau and Pharaoh. But in both cases, they made decisions that turned them away from God. Esau forfeited his, his right of inheritance, the one that God was going to use to bless the nations, by selling his birthright for a bowl of porridge, a bowl of oatmeal. And he was being... Dramatic when he says, what good is my birthright if I perish? I mean, the man could have eaten. My goodness, but he wanted this porridge. And so he, he threw it all away for that. It is clear, though. Even though the election of God does not negate man's responsibility, it's clear that God preferred Jacob over Esau. Is that fair? It seems that God is unfair. Paul anticipates your objection and he says, don't even think that. This is a very strong meg anointe. May it never be. No, no, don't even think such a thing. That God is unfair. And then he gives an explanation that seems totally unrelated. God told Moses, I will have mercy on anyone I choose and I will have compassion on anyone I choose. It seems unrelated because we're thinking about the question rather than the answer. The problem is not with the answer. The problem is with the question. <clears throat> when God elects some, it is not on the basis of his justice. It's on the basis of his mercy. Think about that. When God elects some and not others, it's on the basis of his mercy, not his justice. If God dealt with us only on the basis of his justice, how many of us would go to heaven? Zero. None of us, not one of us is eligible. So salvation depends not on my efforts, but on God's 
great mercy. And although, um, and along with God's mercy, we, we, we see his glory being exalted throughout the earth, even when the wicked try to pervert his plans and the purposes of God. We're told that Pharaoh got, was raised up by God for a very specific purpose, the purpose of spreading his power and glory throughout the earth. But in keeping with the connection between God's sovereign purposes and the responsibility of man, we must remember that Exodus tells us that, God, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart before it tells us that God hardened his heart. Leon Morris, who is a Reformed theologian and, and a strong Calvinist, says this, Neither here nor anywhere else has God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened himself. God is not unjust. If he hardens anyone's heart, it's because we deserve it. Our sin calls out for it. Now this comment may satisfy you, but, but not others. So Paul is forced to say, you will still have questions such as, how can God condemn me when I have no say in the matter? Paul's response is rather harsh. Who are you, old creature, to argue with your creator? P please understand that Paul is writing not to one who has sincere questions, but to one who is arguing with God. See, we don't think we're arguing with God. We're arguing with other people's theology that we disagree with. I I'm not exactly sure where the line is where we are, are asking a sincere question and then we're objecting. Uh, especially if we refuse to receive what God has done. He is God, we are not. Will the creature say to the Creator, why have you made me this way? The potter has the right to do anything he wants to with a piece of clay. And Scripture is... It's a little more straightforward than we want it to be. Darlene Check, is that her name? The Hillsong lady who wrote Potter's Hand. Um, wrote that beautifully, and it's kind of like, I am submitting. Uh, and, and we say yes, and that's exactly what we're called to do. But so many times these verses that, we're used, that are used in Scripture, like, be still and know that I am God. It's like, oh, go have a really nice quiet time. It's like saying, no, it's, like, it's when it says, I will tear down the mountains, I'll send earthquakes, the rivers will rage, because I am God. Now you be still and think about it for a minute and know that I am God. He calls us to respect Him at a level that most of us just are not willing to. And He's saying here, the, the, the piece of clay has no right to argue with the way that it's made. The more democratically minded we are, the more likely we are to struggle with God's sovereignty over the salvation process. When we argue that it is unfair for God to choose some for salvation and not, not others, we're forgetting that all of us were condemned before God snatched us from the brink of destruction. Furthermore, we tend to forget about the wrath of God that we covered so thoroughly for three weeks to where you were saying, oh, I'm tired of hearing about God's wrath and my sin. And it was difficult in Romans 1.18 through 3.20. But His wrath is just when it is poured out upon sin. Though we may not fully understand it now, 
God's glory will be revealed not only in His mercy, but also in His wrath. We're told over and over in Scripture that God loves sinners and that He is patient with them, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. That long-suffering, though, may increase the intensity of His wrath once it is poured out. At present, our hearts cry out for the lost, begging God for mercy and saving them. But there's going to come a day when we are made perfect and our perspective is the same as God's. And we will understand the martyr's cry in Romans 6, verses 9 and 10. Now we're told to, to bless those who persecute us and who would even kill us to, to, to love our enemies. But when we are made perfect and we understand God's holiness in its fullness and we recognize man's sinfulness, we'll understand the martyrs crying out for vengeance. And we'll understand the cry for the wrath of God. So, and, and by the way, <laughs> we don't fully understand God's wrath, and sometimes we're a little bit upset with it. But we, we do understand our own wrath when, when people do us wrong, right? Just imagine how many times multiplied that is with God's holiness and righteousness. Well, what is, the, what is the conclusion? That if God had not been merciful, not one person would have been saved. Those who pursue God through the law or through what they consider to be a moral lifestyle, trying to be good enough to get to heaven, will never be saved. Because it is not of works. It has nothing to do with work, salvation comes through belief in the gospel, repentance of our sins and belief in the gospel. The gospel, of, uh, the good news that, that our creator God has made a way for sinful men and women to be connected with him. And it's through Jesus. And as we've talked about many times before, no Jesus, no gospel. When somebody asks you for your testimony, it's wonderful to hear about God in the church. But if I don't hear about Jesus, I don't know about your relationship with the Lord. It has to be through Jesus. If you believe that gospel, you will be saved. The doctrine of election may be a troubling, difficult doctrine for you. If you belong to Jesus, I can promise you one day it is going to be incredible beyond your wildest imagination. So, with that in mind, let's close our eyes for just a moment.